As I was uh, working on the sermon text this week, I realized one of those um, pastorally faux pas, and I realized um, if I preach this text like I want to preach this text, we'll be here until 2 o'clock and nobody will be happy. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I, I split it, much to the consternation probably of the worship team, which kind of, they have to juggle a few songs. Uh, so this is actually going to be part one of Christ the Firstborn. So uh, hang with us there. We're going to have the same text next week. Um, whoa. First, uh, sorry, not First Corinthians, Colossians chapter 1. It's a very different book with a very different problem. Verse 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in that everything in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, open the eyes of our hearts this morning that we may see Jesus high and lifted up, that we may see his incredible majesty and supremacy, that believing in his supremacy, we might see his sufficiency on our behalf. <clears throat> Open our eyes to the hope to which we have been called in Christ. Open our eyes to the immeasurable greatness of his power at work in and for us who believe the good news of Jesus Christ. And we ask this for his glory and for our good. Amen. In 1961, J.B. Phillips released a book that uh, was a very important book. The title of that book was, Your God is Too Small. He had begun to see how uh, people's views of God within uh, the culture at that point in time had really shrunk God down to a manageable size but not only made him manageable, but essentially made him useless. He, This God that people were now believing in did not have the power to do that which we normally would look to God to do. He became more of a, uh, a servant to us at times, or a therapeutic help to us at times. The times have changed a little bit. Um, now we talk about the uh, the. the th- Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And so if J.B. Phillips was still around, he'd probably write another book saying, your God is still too small. <laughs> the first part of his book, is he calls it deconstruction, in which he, he looks at those false ideas of God and points out how they don't really satisfy 
They're not sufficient for us. And in the second part of the book, he says it's more constructive, and he's trying to build a, a biblical view of the living God. Well, I'm here to tell you that Paul had that idea a long time before J.B. Phillips did. Because that exactly is the problem that we find here in Colossae. Their Jesus was too small. And Paul is about to give them, in some ways, a mind-blowing view of the reality of Jesus Christ so that they might see how awesome and uh, sufficient he is. Our big idea this morning is that because Christ is supreme, he is sufficient. Um, for those of you who haven't kind of caught on um, yet, uh, the, the, the whole idea of the sermon series from Colossians is Christ, supreme and sufficient, because that's what this whole book is about. Jesus fully reveals the greatness of God to us. Paul and Timothy shift gears. Okay, the last few weeks we've been looking at their prayer, but now they kind of move into a hymn of praise. Uh, some people aren't sure <coughs> as to whether this was a hymn of praise that already existed that Paul, you know, borrowed and used for it, you know, for this benefit, or if Paul himself actually penned, or Paul and Timothy penned this hymn of praise. But one thing is clear, this, the way this is structured grammatically and, and how it is written indicates that it is not normal prose, but a hymn of exaltation. And in fact, this is really the heartbeat of this letter. Because here he's going to lay the foundation for everything else that follows. That, that he's going to show in the weeks to come, you know, the, the rest of this letter, how this Jesus is the answer to all of the problems that they've been having as a congregation. And so the themes that are found in this letter are going to be carried forward through the, uh, sorry, in this hymn, carried forward to the rest of this letter. It's tied to the prayer grammatically. Because it, it, it's tied to the previous sentence where it talks about his beloved son, and now it's going to describe that beloved son. He, he mentions briefly at the end of uh, verse 14 that it is him that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and then it uses this fun, this odd word, who. Okay? Who is? And then he explodes in this um, amazing section of praise. And the first thing that he reveals about who Jesus is, is that he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus makes the invisible God visible. Now the word for image is one that we've, we've transliterated into that idea of icon. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, if uh, any of you want to know what an icon is, uh, if you still have a dollar bill or a coin in your wallet, just op you know, open up your wallet, pull it out, and you'll see a, an image, a face of a president, except in the case of Ben Franklin, if you have a five spot. Okay? Uh, a president, that's an image, that's an icon. It's a representation uh, of a person or a thing. And so what, what Paul is saying is that Jesus is a representation 
of the invisible God. But unlike that dollar bill or that five dollar bill or that quarter, he is not a lifeless representation. He is in fact a living representation. He's not just three-dimensional, like if you go to Madame Tussauds in Paris, uh, not Paris, London, and see wax figurines of people. He is a living, breathing icon of the invisible God. Precisely because God, as we see from the Ten Commandments, does not deal in dead, graven images. But he gives us the living Son as an image of himself. And so the question has to come up, is he an image of God like we are the image of God? <coughs> Genesis chapter 1 says that man was made in the image of God. Is it the same thing that's going on in this particular sense? And I would say, um, not exactly. Because on the one hand, we were created, and he has always been. He is not created. Another way which we're going to you know, kind of hit that in a, in a few moments is, is the, the faithfulness of that image. And we, because of our sin, do not faithfully represent the reality of who God is morally. But Jesus does. Okay, So uh, there's a sense in which we are like him in that image, but there's a sense in which we are very different from him in that image. Image. He is the living, uncreated image. He is, in a sense, the spitting image of the Father. You know, sometimes when we have children, um, you know, that's the spitting image of his dad. I'll, no one will ever say that about my kids. Um, if they do, then something really strange has happened. Okay? My kids don't, well, my daughter sort of looks like me a little bit. Her feet look like my feet. Um, <clears throat> Her feet are the spitting image of my feet. Okay, that's about all I can take um, in that. Um, in other words, he perfectly reveals the Father to us. In John 1, after the, the passage we read already this morning, in verse 18, John says, No one has ever seen God because he's invisible. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. And so what he's saying there is that no one aside from God has seen God. We know from you know, even Isaiah 6, when, we, when, when Isaiah has this image in the throne room that even the angels don't look upon the face of God. They have wings that are covering their eyes because God... Angels, they're holy, right? They're not sinner, sinners like us, but even they can't gaze upon the, the, the majesty of God. They must hide their eyes. And so the only one who has seen God is God Himself. Father, Son, and Spirit. And so John says that the only God, and he's referring to Jesus, has come from the Father's side, and he has made him known, or in the, the Greek it says exegeted. And so we, you know, us pastor guys who went to seminary, we exegete a passage. And when we exegete a passage, what, it, what we do hopefully is we first 
understand the passage and make it clear to you folks. Okay, so that's what preaching is supposed to be doing. Exegeting a passage, making it clear. And so what, what John is saying is that Jesus makes the Father clear to us. We, we know who He is through Jesus predominantly. Hebrews 1 picks up this same idea by saying in verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And again, ties in with what we're seeing here in Colossians 1 because it repeats this idea of He upholds the universe by the word of His power. But He's the exact representation. Meaning, there's no faulty data. Haven't you ever taken a picture with your digital camera and sometimes it, something goes wrong and there's one, there's ones that don't come out. <coughs> there's been some bad data in there and so either things are really um, distorted or they don't even come out at all. There's no distortion with Jesus. Okay? If I am supposed to image God to my children. I am supposed to reflect and reveal who the Father is to my children. And unfortunately, in doing that, there is bad data. I am not always like the Father in heaven. Sometimes I am rash. Sometimes my anger is not righteous. Sometimes I don't pay attention like I ought to. There's bad data that, that, in, that reveals not who God is, but a distortion of God. With Jesus, there is no distortion. There's no bad data. It's perfect. And so we see that Jesus, as He is revealed in Scripture, is sufficient to reveal all we need to know about God. If Jesus doesn't reveal it, it probably means we don't need to know it at this point. But if you want to know who God is, Paul would say, look at Jesus in the Scriptures. He perfectly represents who God is. And so he says this amazing thing in 2 Corinthians 4, talking about unbelievers. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God, sorry, of Christ, who is the image of God. So on the one hand, he's saying that the reason why unbelievers don't see how incredibly awesome and glorious and majestic and holy Jesus is is because their eyes have been blinded by the evil one. Okay, and so, you know, we need to pray that God would open their eyes, that God would remove that, that blinding factor from the evil one. But where I want to go with this is what do you see when you look at him in the Bible? Paul would say that you should see the gospel, the glory of Christ. That's what we should see. We should see a God (coughs) who has come to reconcile sinners to Himself. 
We should see a God who is gracious to the humble because they're repenting of their sin. Conversely, we also see a God who opposes the proud because they refuse to turn from their sin. But we should see the gospel. What do you see when you look at Jesus in the scriptures? That's a good indication of where your heart is with relationship to Jesus. And so Jesus, the supreme, unique image of God, sufficiently reveals the Father to us. Secondly, Jesus is supreme because He made all things. See, Paul and Timothy are not done revealing the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. He Not only is He the image of the invisible God, but He says, they say, He is also and this strange phrase, the firstborn of all creation. And now we have a problem. Does this mean that he was created first and then created the rest? You might think initially, who would believe something as dumb as that? Well, People do. There was a guy by the name of Arius back in the 4th century. The Arians. That was their whole thing. That Christ was a created being. He was exalted above all other created beings. But that Jesus was not divine. He was condemned at the Council of Nicaea. But his heresy lives on today. If you talk with a Jehovah's Witness... What you will find is they will say exactly what Arius said. He was the first created being who is exalted, but he's not God. If you talk to a Mormon, you'll get a slightly different spin on it. That he is the first created being, but who became God? And so they'll say he is God, but they will not say he was eternally God. Paul would have none of that. The Apostle John would have none of that. In fact, remember what we read in the very first sentence of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Didn't become God, has always been God. Jesus is that Word of which John 1.1 speaks. If we look at Scripture and see how Scripture uses this this word firstborn, we're going to see that it does not mean what Arius thought it meant. It does not have to mean that you were literally born or created. In Exodus chapter 4 we read, Then you, referring to Moses, shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel, is my firstborn son. Had God given birth to Israel? Literally? No. But he's (coughs) setting them up as a status. The status of uh, these are um, uh, my adopted children and they are my heirs. They are preeminent at this point in time above all of the nations. 
We see in Psalm 89, I will make him, referring to David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so David here, as a type of Christ, is called God's firstborn. Again, it refers to a status, not a biological reality. And so the way that the Scriptures use this term do not mandate that we see Jesus as a creature, but we recognize the exalted position of Jesus. Just as David had an exalted position above all the rest of the kings, and Israel had an exalted position above the rest of the nations. Jesus has an exalted position. That is Paul's point. And he explains it further here. (coughs) The Son, who is eternally God, as we see in, in John 1, is exalted over all of creation. He is the heir of all of creation precisely because He's the one who made it. Just as as John continues on in the beginning of uh, His Gospel in verses 2 and 3, all things were created through Him. And so when when we step back, we have to remember all three persons of the Godhead are involved in creation. Father, Son and Spirit. But right here, because this was a a Christological problem in the life of the church of Colossae, that that Paul is is hitting on the the fundamental idea of Christ as Creator. Okay? And so he says, everything, all things. Four times in three verses he says all things. Okay? We have to get the point. All things. Not most things. All things. If it is created... It was made by Him. It was made through Him. It was made for Him. And that's sort of the structure of this hymn, that these things are made by Him and for, through Him and for Him. In other words, all of creation finds its meaning finally and ultimately only in Jesus Christ. When we start to study and understand, you know, the created order, if we're not starting with the, 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 the Christ at the center, we're going to misinterpret and misunderstand everything we discover about creation. That's what Paul would say anyway. And so, we see that the Son created all things. He made it Himself. And so we could probably view this as the Father commissioning and the Son accomplishing through the work of the Spirit. We're not sure exactly how all of this took place. We just know that (coughs) God spoke. It existed. Okay? Um, But we see that Jesus didn't commission the creation, but He says He actually actively created all things. He is the reason that Everything you know of exists. Now, he didn't create the chair. But everything that we have manipulated to create the chair, to make the chair, he made. Uh, you know, he, he didn't make, don't tell Jaden, Lulu, our dog. But 
he made dogs. And through the normal process of generation amongst dogs, our dear Lulu has come into being. And God was in control over all of that, but it's not like he just spontaneously created Lulu. There's Lulu. Okay? <clears throat> you understand what I'm saying? <clears throat> and so, he made it, and he made it himself, but he also made it for himself. Everything exists for his pleasure. Everything exists for his glory. In fact, he made this, he is the reason that everything was created, precisely so he might become incarnate, that he might enter into the creation in order to save sinners and restore that creation which our sin has corrupted. And so he has made all of it from the largest star in the galaxy, you know, in the universe that you can imagine. Well, not even imagine. Okay? You know how huge a star is? I mean, we think the moon is huge, okay? Or the earth is huge. Stars, much, much bigger. He made that. He stuck it where it is. Okay? All the way down to the smallest things. Bacteria. Amoebas. Real small. One-celled little animals. Creatures. He made those too. So, you know, all of those great things we go to see at the, <clears throat> at the zoo. Elephants, giraffes, and all this big stuff. He made that. And he made those tiny little rodents and playful little otters that I love so much. I like the otters, man. I'm all about the otters. Uh, playful little buggers. But uh, nonetheless, <clears throat> it exists for him. And he made it. And also, not only that, but he is before them all. Meaning that idea of not temporally, chronologically, not just the idea that he existed before they all existed, but he is, again, that, he's reinforcing that idea of supremacy. He's more important than all of that stuff. And it doesn't mean that we don't find importance in things. That doesn't mean that we should not value created things whatsoever, but our primary value is placed upon Christ because he's before all the created stuff. You can enjoy your car. You can enjoy your climbs in the mountains. You can enjoy uh, great taste in orange juice or steak. But Christ comes first. And then he goes on to clarify, to make some distinctions, so to speak. Not distinctions, but just to show the, the breadth of creation. Whether it's in heaven or on earth, he made it. He, Jesus created both the spiritual and the material world. And so there's this, this hint, perhaps, of this early idea of Gnosticism that was corrupting the church in Colossae because the, the Gnostics would say, in looking at the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament, bad. He created 
the physical world, which is corrupt, which is evil, bad. But so, so we don't want the God of the Old Testament. We want the God of the New Testament because he does good stuff. And what Paul is saying is, it's the same God. He made that and declared it good. We're the ones who messed it up. Not God. And so Jesus is the one who made all physical and spiritual realities apart from Himself. In light of that, we are made with the capacity, you and I, for both physical and spiritual pleasure. And so when we experience either physical or spiritual joys, let us give thanks to Him who made us with that capacity. Not only is it things in heaven and things on earth, but things visible and invisible. That which you can see and that which you cannot see. And again, this has this idea probably of matter versus spirit. He further explains this with, with four different words referring to authority. <coughs> About the thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Uh, some people in trying to exegete this text thinks that all of, think of all of these point to the spiritual and invisible realities. Okay? I, I tend to think that it refers to both. The physical visible and the spiritual invisible. Because they are connected. Okay? Uh, in, in contact with the physical leaders of the world, the, the Bible has this, has, presents this idea, particularly in Daniel, that there are princes or angels who are above various regions and countries. Okay, and so the point is that Jesus made them all, right? Jesus made kings and presidents, and he also made the others, angels, who exert spiritual authority in places. And so Paul's point is, is that Jesus has established all earthly and heavenly authority. He's bound to no one but the Father. He's free to do all that He desires to do. That there is no spiritual authority or physical authority that can thwart Him. And so Jesus, according to Paul, who made all things, is supreme over all those things because He made them and He rules over them. It's like when you create something and you get the patent, you control it. He's got the patent. He controls it. No one has stolen ownership of it from him. So briefly, let's look at the third part. (coughs) That Jesus is sufficient to save us completely, precisely because he is supreme. The supremacy of Christ has implications that Paul would spell out later on in this letter, and I'm just going to sort of summarize these. For instance, we are to look to the Creator, not the creation, for help in our physical and spiritual lives. It's the recognition that 
you go to the top. Why deal with all the intermediaries? Jesus is the one who has made all of these things. He is supreme, and we have access to him. We're, in fact, forget access. We are united to him by faith. Why would you try to you know, deal with something in the created order for your help, so to speak? That doesn't mean don't go to doctors. Okay? There are means that Jesus appoints for your physical well-being. So if you walk out of here and go, hey, I don't have to go to the doctor ever, um, Ken will tell you you're wrong, right? Okay? No, not that you have to see Ken. Yeah, that Ken, not that Ken. <clears throat> no, that Ken would probably say the same thing. Okay? This is not rule out God's use of means, but what it says is that Christ is ultimate. So it, go to the doctor and pray for your doctor for the Spirit to be at work. Don't disconnect these two things. Okay? What was going on in the Colossian community was that they thought they had to go through created things, angels, for instance, is one of them, to somehow um, get more blessing than they could get from Jesus. And what Paul says is, there's only one place to go for blessing, and that is Jesus himself. Don't waste your time with angels and uh, all of that stuff. <clears throat> Crystals, whatever it is, those strange things that people in Sedona use. Okay. In other words, don't try to manipulate the created order to gain salvation. You're, you're not shedding the blood of animals. You're not doing incantations. There's no magic that can be done to produce these things. Seek Jesus. He who made it is sufficient to deal with whatever troubles you. Material things are used as signs. We have some right there. Signs of what uh, God gives us in Christ. But there is no power in holy water unless you're fighting vampires, I guess. Has anyone here recently had the encounter of vampire? No. You know, Stephanie has. Okay, let's pray for Stephanie. She needs some spiritual help. Okay, you know, the, 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 the cross is not gonna, you know, burn a hole into the vampire because there are no vampires. But, you know, th that's that sort of idea of, of almost like these, these things have magical power, spiritual power in themselves. And, and no, that's not true. You can buy as many holy hankies from some guy on TV as you want and it's not gonna do you any bit of good. Or, you know, water from, uh, the Jordan River. Ain't gonna do you any good. It's not gonna make you more holy, more spiritual, more godly, nothing. It's just gonna make you lighter in your wallet. But those people are recreating the problem in Colossae. Not only that, but we see <clears throat> later on, Paul is going to say in chapter two, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So there's two aspects of that. We have all the fullness we need in our union with Jesus Christ, but also we see that Jesus Christ is the head or the ruler of all rule and authority. And so we see that all authorities are answerable to Jesus regardless of their power and prestige. And so what I would say to you on this Sunday after the election is that President Obama is neither Messiah nor Antichrist. All right? 
We are prone through our idolatry, whether conservative or liberal, to seek all of our blessing out of the government. And that's idolatrous. We are to be seeking Christ. That doesn't mean you don't vote. doesn't mean you don't use wisdom. But you also recognize that your, your ultimate hope and, and security is not bound up in who happens to be sitting at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Washington, D.C., and I don't know the zip code. Okay. The president, our sheriff, uh, your congressmen, your senators, governor, are all answerable to Jesus Christ. And he reigns and rules through them, even though they don't necessarily recognize that or him. He will accomplish his good purposes, which sometimes look bad to us, through them. That's a sermon for another day. <clears throat> but we also don't have to appeal to or appease angels. We don't have to appeal to dead saints. We don't have to appeal to Mother Mary. For we see it is Christ and Christ alone. And sometimes it's not one of those people. Sometimes it's some, the person sitting next to you in church. I know a couple that you don't know, unless you're my wife, <clears throat> and they're, they're each other's idol. He looks to her for ultimate approval. She looks to him to make her life the way she wants it. It's almost like he's like the little genie in a bottle or something, you know? <clears throat> Excuse me. And the fact that he can't get her approval is killing him. That's what an idol does. It kills you. And she's killing him trying to get what she wants. And so it's this, this sad situation where these people are living for one another and not necessarily living for Christ and, and don't have the capacity on the one hand to say no to the other person or... Um, when the other person doesn't come through, to be completely and utterly devastated. See, that's what's going to happen. If, if you're banking on another human being for your, your earthly joy and satisfaction, you're going to be devastated when they don't come through and they're not going to come through eventually. If you're living for the approval of another human being, it could be your spouse, it could be your dad, it could be your mom, it could be your boss, you will be devastated when you don't get it. And eventually you're not going to get it because you're not perfect. Those are cruel masters. We are to look directly to Him who is our mediator with all that troubles us. Which is why the author of Hebrews says that He is our great high priest who sits upon the throne of grace that will let us boldly approach Him so that we might receive the mercy and grace we have in the present time. He says, don't go to anybody else. Go to Jesus. 
And so the Colossian Christians had lost sight of the supremacy and therefore the sufficiency of Christ. They were looking to angels, to rituals, asceticism, and other means to become more like God. They were in danger. They hadn't quite done it yet. But they were in danger of forsaking the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. The one who fills us, giving us all that we need for life and godliness. So where are you looking? Let's pray. Father, this text ought to humble us precisely because it exalts Jesus, precisely because it portrays Him (coughs) as He truly is, not a meek peasant from Galilee, but the Creator of everything that is. He is the one that we should bow before He is the one that we should seek for all blessings eternal and earthly. He is the one, period. And we are the ones who look everywhere sometimes but Him. Have mercy on us. Teach us to fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the glory, sorry, the joy that was before Him, scorned the shame of the cross, but went down willingly. Help us to fix our eyes upon Him. And we ask this in His name. Amen.